In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. As characters go in film or in literature, what they do, what they say, what they reveal about themselves is only interesting to the extent that you understand where they came from. And so there's a whole new cottage industry of stories out there called the origin story where it all began. I asked my kids on the way into church this morning, they asked me, so what's it about today? And I said, you ever heard the word origin story? And they said, yeah, kind of. And I said, tell me what, when everybody goes to see Star Wars this December, what's the one thing they really want to know most? And they both said, who is Ray's father? Bingo. Where does she come from? What's that all about? Look, Vader's interesting only insofar as we understand Anakin. Batman is only interesting to the extent that we understand Bruce Wayne. The origin story matters. And the poignancy or the sympathy or the believability we have for any character in some ways rests upon whether or not we think their origin can account for how they live. Origin stories matter. Origin stories connect with us because we've all got one. We're in a series as of the last, last week listening to the story of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is not a fictional character. He's an actual character. But what we're going to hear today as we jump forward a few chapters from where we were in chapter 1, we're going to jump forward to that moment that you might call Isaiah's origin story. What set him on his path? What set him on his way? How did he find, if you will, his voice? And all of that is interesting, but we're listening to his origin story not so much that we can understand Isaiah, as important as that is. Because I'd like to argue to you that Isaiah's origin story is supposed to be Israel's new origin story. That's why he's there. That's why he's come to speak. They've lost their way. They need to find it again. They need to have a renewed sense of an origin story. And so we're going to listen to Isaiah in order to understand Israel. But really, we're listening for another reason. Because as I said last week, when I introduced to you that, that famous painting by da Vinci that actually ended up having scratchings beneath the surface of the final product to suggest that there was a painting beneath the painting, there's a story beneath the story. This story is beneath a story, and that story involves us. This story is about our origin story. And if Isaiah in his way is going to find his way through it, then maybe we need to find ours in it too. The question is How? And what will be the features of that beginning? That's what we're listening for. If you're able to stand, we're in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. 
And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their eyes heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Chapters 1 through 5 of Isaiah is really an attempt for him to explain the conditions on the ground in Israel at that time that gave rise to God calling Israel into service. It was to depict in those first five chapters the cultural and spiritual moment that Israel finds itself in. And if you were here last week, you may remember the very brief historical grounding of that moment. It is around the 8th century before Jesus Israel has been split into two very polarized kingdoms, a north and a south. The Assyrian Empire has swooped in and will soon exile the northern kingdom back to Assyria. Later in Isaiah, you will hear of one named Babylon. Babylon will come in and swoop in and exile Judah, the southern kingdom, into its world. You might say, for Israel, the world has run amok. And that is the condition into which Isaiah is invited But before Isaiah has a word to say, he has something to learn. He has something to learn first about God. Something foundational, which you might say is the truth of every origin story. Every origin story is about somebody discovering something really profoundly deep and foundational to their understanding of the rest of their existence. That's what's true For Isaiah, and he has something to learn about, first of all, the Lord. Now, what he has to learn comes in a very particular moment. It is not simply Isaiah saying, one day Isaiah had a moment. Instead, it says, in the season that King Uzziah died. Wait a minute, who's King Uzziah? It's one of the southern kings. He was ascended to the throne at the age of 16. He reigned for 52 years. And it says, if you were to peruse his biography there in 2 Chronicles 26, it says in verses 4 and 5, Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Sounds like a winning biography. 
You, you proceed more into that paragraph and you learn that he's the one who raises armies. He fights wars. He builds strong towers. He builds enormous cisterns. He commissions wise people to build these great machines. He's kind of like the 8th century equivalent of Alexander the Great plus Elon Musk. They're all together. He's nailing it. And he's the kind of guy you go, huh, you're going to be on the lecture circuit soon. Let me follow you. Until so you hear what it says of him in verse 16. Of him it says, but when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Uzziah had come to grasp something in God, but in turn decided that he was out to really take something from God. And it came to bite him back for him to discover that he could not take from him what he had actually grasped in him. And that is the background of what Isaiah has to learn about the Lord. Now, I'm about to show you a very short clip that is almost uh, too trivial to mention because it doesn't quite capture the the sobriety of something Uzziah, Uzziah has had to learn. But it does capture something rather important that I think understands what is, what is Uzziah's fault there? What, what has he come to learn the hard way? This is a, a little independent film um, with Kirsten Dunst. Uh, watch what happens when uh, these two ladies encountered her. She, by the way, she's an actress, in case you weren't sure. But um, just watch these couple of moments. Kirsten Dunst? Yeah, that's me. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Hi. <laughs> cool. Cool. Oh. <laughs> don't you want your friend to take it? I don't trust her. All right. Got it? Cool. Cool. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk or anything? Uh, uh, I mean, you can ask me a question or are you curious about anything? I mean, can you tag me? That was going to be my question, too. (laughs) (laughs) You can tag people. You can tag people. So it'll show up on my profile. I told you, I called it. Oh my god, I'm such a genius. I've already got like 15 likes. We're gonna get so many random followers that we don't even know. Kirsten! It's funny, but it's sick, right? Uh, celebrity is not the same thing as deity, though tell that to people who are full of celebrities, right? But there's a sense in which your respect for them is entirely tied to what they can do for you, not for who they are in themselves. And again, maybe it's a stretch for me even to invoke that little clip to say that this is something Uzziah was learning the hard way, but you can't take from him what is his. 
Whatever you get from the Lord, you can't steal from him. It's not to be stolen. I do not share my glory with another, he says elsewhere. And it's dangerous to think that you can. What Isaiah is having to learn is what you see in that clip. And, 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 and even in that clip, though, it, it, it's, it's fanciful. It didn't really happen. It, it, that sort of thing happens all the time and in real life. Maybe you heard the story from earlier this summer about the thousands of people that have taken it upon themselves who probably are not even qualified to do so to hike Everest. And they're climbing up, traversing. I mean, you can see the pictures of the lines of people traversing up there that have no business going to the highest place in the entire planet. And people have died doing this. And you hear the stories of people walking up and people kind of get tired and dehydrated and they're asking for water and people just sort of keep on walking and saying, sorry for you, should have planned ahead. And then others have died and, and they're just laying there in the ice. And what, is pe- what are other people doing? They're keeping walking on by, walking by these dead bodies. Why? So that they can get a selfie. You and I will always run the risk of coming into the presence of something great and thinking that we can sort of repurpose it for our own ends. And what Isaiah is learning in this moment, in these first few verses, where he sees the fullness of God and all of his glory and his majesty, he's out to learn is that God is without equal. He is not simply a bigger than the universe in terms of size. That's not even an appropriate category. He's not just another thing like the universe is. He's not a thing at all. And the, the idea of us applying to the idea of person for him barely understands his being. All we can talk about is it, of God is in terms of analogies. And those are stretches. God is without compare. And that is part of Isaiah's origin story. He is holy. And of all the times in Hebrew scripture, most of the time when they say a word for emphasis, they'll say it twice. Land, land. Um, um, Love, love. Whatever it might be. Uh, You ever see the bridge on the river Kwai? Right? You know, the train, the bridge blows up, the train falls. All of the American and British uh, operatives are dead except one British surgeon. And what are the last two words of the bridge on the river Kwai? Madness. Madness. Only two other times in the entire Old Testament do you find the Old Testament speaking of something, some word, three times in a row. And here's one of them. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. In one verse, we capture something profoundly important that has to be part of everybody's origin story, that he is vast beyond all measure And yet he is nearer than your next breath. His fullness is immeasurable. And yet there is nowhere where he is absent. Nowhere absent from view. Um, I would dare say um, that very few of us have had the same experience of this sense of God's majesty as Isaiah does in his vision. And that's fine. But you might say that one means by which God conveys that sense of his otherness and his closeness is through our prayers. David Bentley Hart is an Eastern Orthodox theologian. And of prayer, he said this. Prayer is the art of seeing reality as it truly is. And if one has not yet acquired the ability to see God in all things, one should not imagine that one will be able to see God in himself. 
We cultivate that sense of seeing, among other ways, through the way in which we pray and still ourselves and ask him to demonstrate himself in the same way that Isaiah is seeing God like he's never seen God before. There's a famous line from an Elizabeth Barrett Browning poem. You've probably heard it. It goes like this. Earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit round and pluck blackberries. Isaiah is here to discover that the Lord is God and he is one. And in him is beauty and perfection. What does that look like? What does it look like to grasp that a little bit? This is seen from the Lord of the Rings. When the dwarf Gimli comes upon the co-regent of Lothlorien. She's an elf. Her name is Galadriel. And in this moment, I just want you to watch his face. And what gift would a dwarf ask of the elves? Nothing. Except to look upon the lady of the Galadrim one last time. For she is more fair than all the jewels beneath the earth. <laughs> oh. Oh. Actually, uh, there was one thing. Uh, uh, no, 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 I'm talking nonsense. It's quite impossible. Stupid. Henceforth, I will call nothing fair unless it be her gift to me. What was her gift? I asked her for one hair from her golden head. She gave me three. He's in the presence of beauty and he almost can't look at her in the face. And he marvels that one who is so high so sovereign and immortal as the elves are, would condescend, and that's usually we use that in a negative way, but condescension just means if you are greater to stoop to those who are lower, you are descending them, you're condescending. She has the right, and that's a proper way of condescension. That's who she is to him, and Isaiah, that's how he's getting it. God is condescending unto him, and he can't believe it. Part of his origin story is to discover that to understand God, that perhaps the most primal foundational inclination we ought to have is the inclination to bow. And when that is true, we've come to learn something. Seeing his holiness. But we can't Simply stop there, and surely Isaiah doesn't. He doesn't only see his holiness. He also mourns his own sinfulness. Listen to what he says there in verse 4 and 5. And the foundations of the earth, and the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Charles Williams was an author, a professor. He was one of the Inklings, one of the little uh, crowd of um, uh, poets and authors that would meet with C.S. Lewis there in the Eagle and Pub there in, in London, and they would discuss their various writing projects and talk about what it means to have faith. Charles Williams was a professor. He was a professor of, of someone we actually quoted last week, W.H. Auden. 
himself a poet. And W.H. Auden once said of Charles Williams, whenever he would be with him, Auden said of Williams, for the first time in my life, I felt myself in the presence of personal sanctity. In that, he's not saying that Charles Williams was just some intellectual giant or that he was some self-righteous prig who knew he was great. He was talking about being in the presence of something moral and beautiful and full of integrity such that it would bring light to a darkened corner or a darkened soul. He could feel it. He could sense it. Isaiah, his origin story is not merely to grapple or see God's holiness. It is also to grapple with how far his own character is from God and he is devastated by it. Woe is me, I am lost. That, that word there for lost is I am done, I am destroyed, I am nothing, I crumple before you. And, and that sort of sentimentality, that, or not sentimentality, that sort of sentiment, make sure you understand what he's not saying. He's about to be invited to speak by God, which is this wonderful irony that he is actually discovering in that moment that the one thing that he's going to be called into service is unfit for purpose. He can't even speak with clarity or with goodness or with kindness or with charity. It's like a man who has been working in the oil fields, dripping wet with oil, suddenly being transported to walk his daughter down the aisle at a wedding. He's not fit to fill that role in that moment. And he is mourning that. For him to say, I am a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips, he is not merely casually saying like what we like to say, well, you know, we're only human. Or, you know, I'm I'm just an awful person. There's something more poignant about what he's mourning here. He's mourning about something that is not in him, that is far from him, but he wishes that we're there. This is a grief about what he can see is not present and not even close, but which he wishes were true, and yet there's this chasm between him and it, and he, he is powerless to bridge it. That's mourning. That's more than just saying, I'm just a bad person, as if to sort of get everybody and God off your back. It's something far more endearing, because at least you're recognizing it's something deeply profound. What is true of Isaiah is exactly what's true of Peter. You know, when Peter in Luke chapter 5 first meets Jesus and, and Jesus says, hey, throw your nets over there. And Peter says, you know, look, Master, we've done this before. Thanks. Well, this is not our first rodeo. We've, we've tried to catch before. It's nothing. And Jesus says, throw your nets on the other boat. And so he does. Haul in 153, right? And then Peter kind of looks at Jesus in the face and realizes, I have misstepped. And what is his words? Depart from me, O Lord. I'm a sinful man. In that moment, I think Peter is kind of feeling what, what Auden felt of Charles Williams, what, what Gimli thought of Galadriel, what Isaiah felt of the Lord. In that moment, he is mourning something profound. He is mourning the fact that there is something beautiful in the Lord that is not beautiful in him. There's a sonnet I ran into a few weeks ago from John Donne. And it says there in the first four lines of the sonnet number four, O my black soul, 
Now thou art summoned by sickness. Death's herald and champion, thou art like a pilgrim which abroad hath done treason and dare not turn to whence he's fled. What John Dunn captures there in just those first four lines is not merely the idea that sin is kind of like an error or a moral breach. He's talking about something like treason, like a betrayal, a betrayal of something good and beautiful and merciful. And he mourns that. I read an article this week about a Christian who, who, who made a transition from one uh, Christian tradition into a Protestant tradition. And, and part of what led him along his way was thinking about his own, not only sins, but his good deeds. And as he reckoned with what was true of him, not only his errors, but all of what he thought was righteous, he, he had this recognition in himself Of himself, he realized, quote, no good work was unsullied by pride, no repentance unaccompanied by expectations of future sin, no love free from selfishness. Just like the older son in that parable of the two sons we talked about last week, even he was going to have to be forced to discover that everything that he was doing for his father was not for his father And Isaiah and John Dunn and this man named Mr. Camel, a man from Egypt who becomes part of a Protestant tradition, realizes even my best works are tainted. So in the same way that in your origin story, when you come to see God in his holiness, that your first inclination ought to be to bow. Where this origin story takes hold in Isaiah, where it might take hold in us, our first inclination might ought to be humility. Because you are shot through with the same problem Isaiah is lamenting and mourning in this moment. And so am I. Beware the condemnation. Beware the uncharitableness. We see his holiness. We mourn our sinfulness. But if all we stop there... It's a rather bleak picture, even if it's poignant. And that's why we also have to learn a third thing. We have to feel something. By this point, Isaiah has seen something worthy of adulation. He has, he has heard words spoken of the goodness of God, and he has, he has spoken himself his own lament about what is missing in him. But now he's about to feel something. And what he's about to feel is forgiveness. And you hear that spoken of in verse 6 and 7. And then one of the seraphim, a seraphim was an angel whose word, whose name literally means the burning one. He flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Usually in the Old Testament, when you hear about coals of fire, it's usually representative of God's wrath. And it's usually on the altar. But here it is speaking of, or it's being spoken of as a refining. In Malachi 3.2, you will hear of God spoken of as the refiner's fire. And in both Malachi 3 and here in Isaiah 6, this coal is out to purify. This coal is out to atone. 
Have you ever been forgiven? Has anyone ever forgiven you? Because in that moment, when they had a choice, if you've offended them, if you've violated love in the way you've treated them, if they have forgiven you rather than taking revenge on you or to retreat into a corner and just lick their wounds, if they have chosen to wrestle instead with everything that they feel towards you, but they're just not going to let love pass by, that they're going to forgive you. Do you know what you feel in that moment? You feel a certain measure of astonishment that they're willing. You might also feel a measure of relief and a sense of being unburdened by something you can't quite put your finger on. What does that look like? I've shown you this clip before, but it's from the movie The Mission. And in this scene, it's only going to go about two minutes, you're going to see one whose name is Rodrigo, played by Robert De Niro, who had been a slave trader for many years and killed many indigenous people. And because he feels like he is unforgivable, he tells these Catholic monks the only way he thinks he'll ever be forgiven is if he hauls this huge weight of armor in a net up scaling a mountain. And here in this scene, he is still carrying that burden and he encounters the very people he had either killed or enslaved. Watch what happens. If you let the scene play out, you see him crying tears of joy because he's been unburdened by the weight, relief, astonishment, freedom. 
That's what you feel when you feel forgiveness. And that's what leads you to the last thing that you learn in part of an origin story. Not that you see his holiness or that you mourn your sinfulness or that you feel his forgiveness. But in that, you begin to receive a certain single-mindedness. The last four verses of this passage are bizarre because Isaiah is being commissioned to go speak a prophetic word, but God is promising Isaiah one thing. It's not going to go well. In fact, the one thing that you would think be the point of communication and speaking a prophetic word is actually going to result in the opposite. You're going to go out and call them by their folly, call them what you see, and instead of them going, gosh, you're right, they're going to ball up with their fists and become hardened. Now, you've experienced that before. Have you ever said a word to someone, something of rebuke or whatever, and, and their jaw stiffens and their fists ball up and you can tell apparently it's not going well (laughs) apparently i'm not connecting apparently they don't think what i'm saying is true so isaiah's words there yeah bizarre but not really and in that moment you know what isaiah's thinking maybe he's thinking maybe i should just stay silent (laughs) apparently what i'm about to say is not very popular and the lord is saying unto him go anyway Why is it not preferable? Why does Isaiah, in fact, choose not to follow his apprehensions? Because he has received a single-mindedness about what his intentions and purpose are. And that single-mindedness comes entirely from what he's seen of the Lord and of himself and of the forgiveness he's received. That's Isaiah's origin story. And it's supposed to become Israel's origin story, but it's also, friends, supposed to become ours. And the question is, what will furnish us with that origin story? This is great. That's fine. But, and maybe there's a certain uh, visceral feeling we have in a moment like this to go, yeah, that's it. But what will really furnish us with it? When Jesus Christ is baptized in the Jordan by John the baptizer, you might say that there's a nice little equivalent between that moment and what's happening here in Isaiah 6. Because both when Jesus is being baptized and Isaiah has his image or his vision here, they're both acknowledging that there is a need for cleansing in order to be reconciled to the Lord. They're both acknowledging that. And in both instances, they're also both identifying with the people for whom they've come. They're parallel. But what sets Jesus apart is that in him there was no need of atonement. He was the righteous one. He was the one of whom John was not going to baptize him. I'm not even worthy to untie your sandals, sir. What's true of Jesus is that in him there was no need of atonement, but in him was our atonement. In him was our covering. In him was our reconciliation with God. And it wasn't just effective for one person. It was effective for everybody that might ever come unto him and take refuge in his forgiveness. That's the gospel. And when we see him, when we see him as that story above even this story, when we see him as the finished project above as da Vinci we showed you last week, with the scratches beneath the surface of the finished product. Jesus is the finished product of which Isaiah's story here is the scratches, the important, important scratches. But what does it look like 
How do you know when you've finally begun to see Jesus for who he is and this origin story has begun to write your story? Let me let you hear the end of what Mr. Kamel said at the end of his memoir of coming into the Protestant tradition. He finally saw this about Jesus. His was not an uncertain mercy. His was not a grace of parts, which one hoped would become a whole. His was not a salvation to be attained, as though it were not already also a present possession. And at that moment, the joy of my salvation poured into my soul, and I wept and showed forth God's praise. Look, if you're here today and you think this is interesting, but maybe you think it actually has explanatory power, then I invite you to let this origin story become your own. Because he's inviting you to the same. And if this is already true for you, and yet there's hard parts of these where you go, ah, I've lost something here. Is your, is your God, has your God become too small? Has your God become your life coach or your concierge or your decoration? Have your thoughts about sin either become too trivial or too burdensome? And your thoughts about grace too small? Have your thoughts about his worthiness to represent him in this world become too distracted? You don't do anything. You ask. You ask that you might be reminded of your origin story. Because it makes all the difference in everything else that you do in the rest of your story. Let's pray. So then, Father, if these things be true, Where have we lost the plot? Where have I lost the plot? Help us in the grace of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.